For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. Hey, you guys mind if I ask you a couple questions about fishing down here? Sure. Cool. What, uh... You got a microphone? I think that you can fish down here. Let me put uh, on my x-rays uh, eyes. Catch and release. But if you want to take the fish out of here, you got to go down there and get you a fishing license. A few weeks ago, a friend of a friend was in Denver. So we decided to go out fishing on the South Platte River where we ended up meeting a couple of guys lounging in the sun. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. I'm gonna have a hit. <coughs> oh, yeah. Keep telling him I want some duck soup. <laughs> yeah, and the Can ducks you make come. some duck soup? <laughs> if I got a duck right now, could you make it? Cool, thanks hey, for your time today, guys. We'll get some <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think fishermen and homeless people can get along pretty well, you know. <laughs> this is Russell Peterson, the friend of a friend. He's a wiry guy with a scruffy beard and a positive energy to him. What have we been seeing so far? We've been seeing ducks so far. <laughs> What's the river look like? <laughs> the river looks rather stained, but not unfishable at this point. Not unfishable. <laughs> These fish go by many names, scum sucker, suburban salmon, scaled whale, sewer bass, old bugle mouth, and golden bonefish. Uh, we're walking along uh, the South Platte, correct? Here outside of downtown Denver, looking for carp, whatever's lurking down in the bottom of this here uh, urban riverway. <laughs> I love chasing carp. It is definitely one of my favorite things to do. In this episode of the Drake Cast, we'll take a trip through Denver, Colorado, in search of the elusive pond pig. While we're at it, we'll learn the history of these lippy critters, talk to a founder of one of the nation's first carp tournaments, and take a trip into the mind of a ditch donkey wrangler. We'll also throw some old-timey string band music in there. Stick around. This is going to be a fun one. And have you fished this river before? Um, yes, I fished the river once before, I believe it was last summer in July, and had a lovely time, spotted plenty of carp in the hardest to reach areas with a fly rod, you know, not, not easy fish by any standard. We had received a couple of inches of rain the previous evening in Denver, so the river was high and muddy, but the sun was shining, so we figured we'd give it a go. I find the South Platte to be quite the interesting river to fish. Being from Wisconsin, seeing the magazine articles and seeing the YouTube videos over the carp craze out here, it's kind of a novelty as a Wisco boy to come out here and chase around the, the Colorado carp. But to really appreciate this fishing adventure, we first need to learn how carp ended up in the South Platte River, because they're not a native species. Um, I've been looking into this quite a bit and there's a pretty cool story behind carp in the U.S. it turns out. 
I'd go over the story myself, but luckily R.A. Biotti did just that a few years back in his movie Carpland, which you might have seen on the fly fishing film tour. In the middle of the 19th century, Americans ate millions of pounds of what we now classify as native game fish. Bass, sunfish, pike, walleye, perch, and trout. The fish helped fuel a booming U.S. population. Immigrants were flocking into U.S. borders, and as a need for more food grew, a crisis emerged. The federal government created the U.S. Fish Commission and told it to find sustainable and easily farmed fish to feed the masses. The commission imported 345 different carp varieties in 1877. From 1879 to 1896, the Fish Commission sent about 2.4 million carp throughout the United States. It was a high yield, cheap, and easy farm food for generations. Carp farmers, consumers, and even newspapers and magazines praised the new fish with glowing reviews. Apparently, carp are a traditional Eastern European food that my great-great-grandparents ate regularly. Hi, I was on the other line. So what's your interest in carp and bathtubs? And I called up my old man to talk about this unfamiliar practice. So it was my mom's grandparents who were from Czechoslovakia. They owned a little grocery store in Chicago, and they would stock up on carp at Christmas time and keep them in their bathtub until they were sold to all of the other Czech immigrant families. That was a typical ethnic food for the Christmas holiday. Like, how many carp in the bathtub are we talking? Well, there had to be at least 10, because the deal was that your grandmother, when she would visit her grandparents at Christmas time, would make sure that she never ate or drank anything during the meal, because she was afraid that she'd have to go up into the bathroom where these carp were sloshing all around, and it scared her so much she wouldn't go up there. Back to Biotti's history of the carp. Carp made it into the high-end hotels and restaurants like the Waldorf and Astoria Hotels in New York City. The new fish graced menus for the same price as halibut, mackerel, and kingfish. In 1908, U.S. fishermen caught nearly 43 million pounds of carp, worth $1.1 million. But that would be the peak for the carp in the United States. By 1930, the commercial catch dropped to 23 million pounds, then to 17 million in 1931. The stocks weren't declining, it was the demand. Because of its wide availability and its market on the streets in major U.S. cities, carp was soon labeled as a fish of the masses, a poor man's fish. Meanwhile, booming industries in the United States poison many metropolitan waterways, and the effects of the reduced water quality would hurt the carp's reputation in a few ways. Carp could live in toxic water that killed many native species. As they inhabited more and more polluted waters, the U.S. deemed them a trash fish, unhealthy for human consumption. As the country continued polluting and channeling major waterways, more native species died, and communities pointed their finger at one of the only fish left. The carp had fallen from grace. Wildlife agencies and outdoor enthusiasts deemed the carp a severe threat to game fish. The angling community labeled the fish poor for angling and a threat to ecosystems nationwide. Six decades after they spread to almost every state in the Union, the United States was at war with carp. Generations of anglers would be taught to hate the carp and labeled a trash fish to avoid at all costs. And this attitude stuck around for a good while. Hello? You there? But just a few decades after carp started being seen as trash fish, 
There was a suburban kid who didn't have all that many fishing options. Grew up down in Arizona on the Verde River in the mid to late 70s. This is Steve Hilbers, who now owns the Bighorn Trout Shop in Fort Smith, Montana, with his business partner, Hale Harris. Well, when, when we were kids, we spent a lot of time out there fishing. There were bass and catfish and, and lots of carp in the Verde River, and they would get up in the little eddies and in the corners, and they would eat cotton off the cottonwood trees or whatever would fall in the water. And, you know, at first we were taking our bows and arrows and trying to shoot them, and then we'd see that they were, you know, rising along the edges, eating the cotton off the cottonwood trees. And so we started tying little white fluffy things and, and trying to catch them with flies and we and we had some success doing that and that actually that's where i probably learned to fly cast the best was for carp when i was a teenager down here on the verde river and did you see other people fly fishing for carp i had not heard of anybody else chasing carp with a fly now i must point out that this doesn't mean that no one else had fly fished for carp i'm just telling steve's story but anyways Steve grew up and moved to West Yellowstone, Montana, where he was guiding, and eventually found his way over to the Bighorn River, which in the early 80s had just reopened after being closed to fishing for seven years due to a legal dispute. And we started going over there to fish it ourselves and then actually moved over there in the fall of 85. What was the trout fishing like in the early 80s? Well, those, those fish hadn't been harassed for all that time, or at least not much. And so they were pretty willing. There were lots of two to three pound rainbows that were pretty willing to take just about anything. So it was, it was kind of fishing utopia there for a while. And how did you guys discover that there were carp in this area? And like, why would you ever leave the bighorn and those big dumb trout? So when we moved over to the bighorn and we'd go up on the lake, you know, just looking around, We'd see the carp cruising on the surface there, eating grasshoppers and other bugs. And, and we say, oh, we can, we can go catch those. So we started doing that. And everybody, just like you said earlier, kind of thought we were crazy. Here we are on one of the best trout rivers in the country, and we're up there trying to catch carp on dry flies. We had a lot of fun chasing them. So Brad Downey and I, another guy in town, kind of as a spoof, we said, guy, we ought to have a tournament. And uh, just kind of a guide day off and just kind of goofing around with the local people. And so that next year, we started putting it together. You know, guys would dress like, you know, backwoods guys, and they'd paint their boats funny. And we had some T-shirts made, and uh, the local ladies made salads, and we had a big barbecue afterwards. And and we took this old trophy and put a – one of us had a carp weather vane. And so we – Stuck that down in there, and that was our traveling carp trophy that first year. That first year being 1988, three decades ago. And who who showed up, like who participated in that first tournament? <laughs> well, certainly at first, the rejects of the fly fishing society. But once people started actually fishing for carp with a fly rod, they understood why we were doing it, because it's a lot of fun. And so it... Uh, it started growing from that. I think the next year we had Bozeman come over. They were all guides over in Bozeman, and a bunch of Billings people started showing up. A bunch, I mean, you know, five or six, not bunches. But grew through the years from word of mouth that these crazy guys over on the Bighorn were catching carp and had this tournament going on. We'll chat again with Steve in a little bit, but before we can move on, a few words from our sponsors. 
This episode of the Drake Cast is brought to you by Scott Flyrods. I got Jim Barchi, the president of Scott Flyrods, on the phone the other day. Well, it's pretty amazing is that since 1974, Scott has done one thing and one thing only, and that's handcraft high-performance fly rods. That's it. I asked Jim why he uses a Scott fly rod. Okay, um, uh, that's easy. Why would I fish with something other than the rod I made? Well played, Jim. Check them out at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. This episode is also brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. This is Bessie Buholtz with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. As the industry leader in fly fishing travel, we specialize in sending anglers all around the world in search of the very best fly fishing opportunities and experiences. We offer a fantastic lineup for both freshwater and saltwater, with more than 190 operations in 26 different countries. This week's featured destination is New Zealand. Home to the largest and most beautiful brown trout in the world, the rivers of New Zealand are legendary to anyone who is serious about freshwater fishing. This is the destination for anglers looking to target trophy browns while sight fishing the country's crystal clear waters. Give us a call here at Yellow Dog or visit us online at yellowdogflyfishing.com. And remember that while there's a lot of ways to get there, there's only one way to do it right. And quick announcement, if you have any questions about Scott Fly Rods or Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, why don't you come ask in person? Both of these fine companies will be at the Denver Fly Fishing Show this weekend. The Drake will also be there selling discount subscriptions. For more information, consult your smartphone. Alrighty, back to the show. So Steve and his buddies are fly fishing for carp in Montana, and right around that time, a young boy on the other side of the Mississippi River was starting to get into fishing. I started fishing at a really young age. Once again, this is Russell Peterson, who we met at the top of this episode. Largemouth bass, like all of your standard, like, northern Wisconsin lake fish. Like, if you caught a pike, that was cool. Like, you know, it was just all about whatever you could kind of get a hold of. As Russell grew older, he also grew wiser. And his tastes became more refined. I kind of got into fly fishing as a way to be a little more of an active fisherman. I, I would go fish this tiny little warm water creek. In that stream is all of your favorite panfish species and a bunch of really nice largemouth bass and the occasional northern pike. I was learning how to fish panfish in the same kind of way that you would learn how to kind of fish trout in a river. I just It's been downhill into warm water species ever since then, you know. Russell continued to goof around with a wide variety of fishing techniques on the warm water rivers of Wisconsin until he shipped off to college. My first introduction to carp was definitely bow fishing them with my buddies in college. Go out, grab the case of beer, load up the boats, grab, you know, car battery and some headlights, and we would take off out into the backwaters as soon as the ice were out, and we would just spend all night out there chasing them around with bows. And it was awesome. It was a great time. They're fond, fond memories with good buddies through college doing that. It kind of taught you where the fish were at, and then I just have realized that fly fishing for them is even harder than, you know, like trying to stalk them with a bow or anything like that. And it's a lot more gratifying when you actually can land a nice 20-pound carp off the fly and then release it back in without a hole through it. (laughs) And while Russell was expanding his fishing repertoire he's still stuck with his bait fishing roots. And then when I went to college and uh, picked up the banjo, 
and started to like really hone playing the banjo and really got into playing fiddle tunes and learning how to play the fiddle I really got into catfishing really got into like chasing river sturgeon and all these fish that you kind of just like bait a hook and sit back and relax so I'd go out and I'd throw out you know my two rods or whatever I was allowed to have and put a bell on them and sit down in my camp chair and just play the banjo for hours and just learn how to play music while I would fish and then eventually ding 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 you know go off and you'd run down and set the hook and see what you got and then release it and then sit back down in the chair and start playing and sit around the campfire and <laughs> have a good time you know it was, it was a fun way to do it it was a it was a great way to learn music and fish at the same time I have a claw hammer tune called the five foot sturgeon about one that got away <laughs> and actually that's the song you're hearing right now. This is Russell on his banjo. And eventually, Russell started playing his banjo with the rough and tumble crowd. Cool, can we just start by having you say who you are? Uh, my name's Russell Peterson, uh, the banjo player for Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. And what is Horseshoes and Hand Grenades? Horseshoes and Hand Grenades is a somewhat old-time string band with a lot of rock and roll fusion and a little bit of jazz all wrapped up with, you know, banjos and harmonicas and accordions and upright basses and all of the fun things that go along with string music and just all the flavors trying to be mixed into one, sort of. <laughs> Most of the music that you've heard so far and what you're hearing right now is horseshoes and hand grenades. If I was a fisher of the stars, oh, the tackle that I'd use, I'd tie the half moon as a hook upon the line. With Saturn as a bobber casting starry deep waters, catch a view every clear night. Oh boy, would I hook if I could fish that celestial brook. Lord, I wish to fish the Milky Way. The five members that make up this band look exactly how they sound. There's lots of flannel, facial hair ranges from middling to absurdist. These guys really know how to put on a show. And they kind of remind me of the characters that you meet at a carp tournament. I think carp anglers get pigeonholed a lot of times as these like blue collar, gritty, salt of the earth type people. And I mean, there's exceptions to that, but it is mostly true, I think. This is writer Ryan Sparks, who recently wrote a feature story for the winter 2017 issue of The Drake about a carp fishing tournament that he had recently attended just outside of Chicago called the Midwest Golden Bones Fly Tournament. You know, if there's one unifying trope, it's just that it's a bunch of people who really love to fish. Someone who really loves fishing isn't going to wait all year for one week in Montana or Patagonia or something. You just need to fish if you love to fish, and carp are a way to scratch that itch. So the guy that won, Dave Kunselman, I think is a graduate student at the University of Chicago. There was construction workers, engineers, uh, fly fishing guides. I met a teacher. There was a physicist there. So it's a really diverse group of people that just love to fish. So pretty cool. Well, I mean, to show you the kind of people they are, like I was talking about Mike Allen earlier. I met that guy and like had a couple beers with him. And within an hour of meeting him, he was like, well, where are you sleeping tonight? And I told him, like, oh, you know, I'm probably just going to crash in my truck somewhere quiet if I can find a place. And he was like, oh, just come sleep on my couch. So I think that's the kind of people 
I don't know, the kind of people you'd want to go fishing with. Yeah, just salt-of-the-earth people. So stay with me here, but I've been working on making this comparison between string band music and, uh, and fly fishing for carp, and I sent you a, an email of my ideas, and you kind of shot them down the other day because they weren't, they weren't very good ideas. Yeah, I just wanted to be honest with you about it. <laughs> so can you can you help me out here? Like, what's the connection between fly fishing for carp and string band music? I get what you're going for. I think it's a, I think it's a like a really cool comparison to draw the carp as a sport fish as we know it today, and kind of what modern bluegrass and string band music has become is definitely they're they are both purely for fun, especially from my point of view. I mean play music is a, a super fun thing to do and truly a beautiful experience with a couple other guys and same with going out and chasing around a carp such a, a funny and strong fish and a, a great quarry for a fly fisherman and really approaching the pod and kind of hunting them with a couple people is is also really fun as our resident carp fishing banjo player like can you see any other connections i really kind of was trying to figure out how to say it correctly, but you had mentioned to me that little bit of carp as an import and bluegrass kind of as an import sort of thing. And that really kind of like made me smile sort of, because it is very true, like carp were brought to the United States as an imported fish for food and for now sport, I guess, and that managed to survive the test of time. Very much like string band and bluegrass music was brought here by, unfortunately, from the slave trade as well. A, a great portion of bluegrass and old-time music is from an African descent, the banjo itself, and Clawhammer as I know it. The only reason it exists is from a, an African descent, and really the mixing of it in America to become what it is today is, is truly a long and sordid journey, but I would say the Carp's journey to North America especially recently now, is probably more sorted than ever. And the common carp itself, it, to a certain extent, has its place in the ecosystem, has been naturalized, and um, is now being enjoyed by many, much like bluegrass and old-time music, is now a part of the modern culture and a part of most people's listening experience, I would say. Uh, much, much appreciated. That was quite a bit better than how I phrased it. I've been thinking about it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make this beautiful for you, man. Cool. Yeah, I think uh, carp and bluegrass go really well together. <laughs> it's a good pairing. Once again, this is author Ryan Sparks. Absolutely, yeah. I, I play guitar, and uh, I've messed around on the mandolin before as well. If you head down to your local waterway to attend a carp tournament or buy a three-day pass to a bluegrass festival these days, in both places you'll find the salt of the earth. Folks that are dancing and casting around, twirling flaming balls and fly rods, passing joints to everyone within shouting distance. You'll find people looking to have a good time that enjoy life. So Ryan, you're from Ontario, Canada, and you drove all the way down to just outside of Chicago. Like, what made you do that? When I was a kid, I used to do uh, bass tournaments with gear, but it wasn't like the uh, big sponsorship, big paychecks, like boats that, with 250 horse engines on the back. It was just like me and some friends. Everybody puts some money in a pool, and uh, whoever wins takes the pool. But like, 
usually whoever won would just buy everyone lunch anyway. It was pretty low key. So I guess that's maybe why I was attracted to the carp tournament. It's just it's the same sort of low key, laid back type of atmosphere as, as growing up. So, which is what fishing is supposed to be about, really. It's just having fun. So, yeah, I, I love carp, man. <laughs> you can probably tell. And Steve, do you participate in any other fly fishing tournaments? And if so, can you like make a comparison between the carp tournaments and the other tournaments you've participated in? No, I never do. And I, and I probably never would, certainly for trout. There's the one fly down in Jackson Hole, and I have no interest in doing that. is isn't a, a contest. It's just being out there. But And that, I guess that was part of the spoof with doing the carp tournament. But I was going to say, one year we had a wealthy gentleman from down south who was there in town, and he, he wanted to put up a $1,000 purse and really turn it into kind of a a big money-making type thing. And uh, we all immediately said, well, if you do that, none of us will participate. And how has the Bighorn Carp Tourney like, changed in the last three decades? Now, the last, oh, I'd say eight, nine years, the Bighorn River Alliance has kind of taken the tournament and now it, it's become a draw and a fundraiser for the Bighorn River Alliance, and it gets a lot of publicity for that, where now we're getting teams from you know all over the country, really, to come and participate, and we're at a post, donates a boat, and we raffle a boat, and we have silent auction items, and then a band comes in, so it's really turned into more of a, a notable event than what it used to be. Today, there are dozens of carp tournaments across the country. The Denver Carp Slam, the Cornhusker Carp Fest, the Eagle Nest Fly Shack in New Mexico puts on a tournament. Nashville has one. The list goes on. After a few hours of seeing nothing on the South Platte, Russ and I hopped in my van and headed over to a nearby pond. That was definitely a carp that rolled. After walking around the entire body of water, we finally saw a sign of life. That's, that's bird poop. We got one in here. <laughs> that bird poop really got me. Yeah, the bird poop was pretty good too, but the first one was not bird poop. The first one was actually a carp. <laughs> I don't see it swimming anywhere though. Well, shucks. <laughs> sky carp ruined in the water carp. <laughs> and what do you mean by sky carp? <laughs> Geese. <laughs> And your kiss is worth a thousand little tunes may she grow strong till the end of days. And your kiss is worth a thousand little tunes may she grow strong till the end of days. Anything else you want to share? I mean, in general, I guess I urge everybody, um, trying to just make sure you like extend a hand to everybody around you who uses your water resources like when you're out there making sure that you talk to your fellow people enjoying your area because not only are you fishing it but there's plenty of people who are paddling it or just want to go sit out on the bank and enjoy an evening on by the river and uh, I think it's really important to stick together as a group of people using your resources it's the only way we're going to keep them clean. It's the only way that we're going to be able to like protect them for the future and that everybody gets to use them is by being a community together. 
and I hope that it, that fishermen and just recreationalists alike can just keep together and like make sure you're saying hi to your friends while you're out there and make buddies. You never know who, what you're going to learn from the old timer sitting on the riverbank out there. There's a, a real community and togetherness that can come out of one little river valley, and I think it's really important for everybody to make sure we're all together working as a team to help protect those resources. Keeping Russell's request in mind, I decided to chat with a couple bait fishermen that Russell and I met on the water. How's it going, guys? You guys catching anything? Nope. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions? Sure. What are you, what are you fishing for? Anything at all my hook. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, that's how we feel. I mean, we have days where we come out and fish particularly for some, but days like this where the weather's nice right now, we just come out and whatever we can catch. What, right. what do you catch out of here? The last time we were here, they had a, like right where your buddy's standing. They were fishing from right there, and they were just catching trout yeah, back to caught, back. Caught 10 trout back within 10, 15 minutes. Catch what? Carp, bass, perch, catfish. That's what I'm trying anything? right now. Fuck no, we saw one carp. <laughs> one? Oh, that's what you were looking Right there, yeah. We were so excited because we walked around the entire fucking lake, and that was it. Like, the like car's right here, and it's like we're 100 oh, yeah. yards from the end. Usually, we have our best luck on catfish on chicken liver. And then you got little bells on the tip of your pole. Yeah, yeah, just to let us know if something's on there or not. <laughs> Something to do, get out the house. Sometimes you're not paying attention to the pole, so that bell helps you know when something's hit that pole. It helps a lot. Oh yeah. So it's definitely what we like to come out and do. We pretty much, up until it got cold, we're out every weekend. Fishing every weekend. Instead of sitting in the house not doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Sit out here and do nothing, right. you know? <laughs> Using your, uh... So we just came out today like the weather's nice, but so far, nothing. Nothing. Not, nothing. I mean, we'll always been. find something to blame, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, we will. <laughs> like they say, it's called fishing, not catching. The only thing we were missing was a banjo and a fiddle. Stick around for this week's field notes, which should include a few pointers on carping. Quite a few thank yous to throw around today. Russell Peterson, Ryan Sparks, and Steve Hilbers, thanks for chatting with us. A big thank you to the band Horseshoes and Hand Grenades for letting us play a whole bunch of their music. You can find a link to their tour schedule on our website, drakemag.com. They're really fantastic performers, and are going to be opening for the infamous String Dusters on a wide range of tour dates this uh, upcoming few months. A shout out to the Bighorn River Alliance for keeping that carp tournament going and for keeping that river clean. Many thanks to R.A. Biotti and Biotti Outdoor Productions for letting us use the audio from their film, Carpland which you can rent via a link on our website. Also, keep your eyes out for this year's Fly Fishing Film Tour, or F3T, which will feature another film from Biotti and the crew. Tour dates have been posted. We hope to see you there. Alrighty, before we can go... I wanted to share a bit more of the conversation I had with Ryan Sparks that didn't quite make it into the episode proper. I don't know if you have uh, like a good answer for this, but what does the carp symbolize to you? 
Yeah, what does a carp symbolize? Um, I think a lot of things. I think I think if you look at the history of carp in North America, they really represent the conflicted relationship we have with our fisheries. I mean, they were originally brought here as both a fish for the table and a sport fish. And like a lot of things, uh, they were plentiful and cheap, and they became associated with lower classes, and they got written off as a trash fish by wealthier people. Um, and that reputation has stuck around until now. But I think fly fishing for carp really challenges that notion. Carp are just starting to get a fair shake as a game fish here. Uh, we're in Europe, the industry around carp fishing makes our bass fishing industry look small. And, and that's actually starting to catch on here as well. For, for a lot of the reasons that people have talked about, um, like why people are attracted to carp, like they're challenging to catch, they're hard fighting, they're available pretty much everywhere you go. And I think the other thing that carp sort of symbolize is, like I wrote about uh, in the piece, um, is a cultural shift in fly fishing away from the days when fly fishing was just a sport that old, rich, white guys did. Carp make it a lot more egalitarian and inclusive. It's more democratic. Like, you don't need a ton of money to go out and, like, fish carp. You can find them anywhere. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about fishing in general is just that, like, a kid fishing for carp underneath some viaduct in Chicago is having just as much fun as some guy that, like, paid thousands of dollars to fly halfway around the world to catch some exotic species. The other thing that carp do is expand our definition of what fisheries are. I think if you, start, if you start fishing for carp and you fall in love with them, pretty soon you start to care about the waters where they live, which are often polluted. And um, it gets people caring about the environment as a whole rather than just a handful of blue ribbon streams out west. Here, like Lake Ontario, for example, there's 80 feet of visibility in areas, which seems super clean. But then you get thinking about it, and it's like, hmm, why is the water so clear? oh, there's this invasive species called zebra mussels. And like, oh, the, these, this other invasive species, the goby, eats them and the carp eat the goby. And then you just realize how humans have really like entirely transformed the ecosystem. The line between native and invasive species is pretty thin. They just, they just symbolize that like conflicted relationship that people have with, with nature, I think. They're just, it's all that wrapped up into this fish that's hard to catch. And finally... A few tips on chasing carp that I personally had never thought of. You know what really gets me excited is when there's flooding. Everywhere I've lived, whether it's Nebraska, Iowa, uh, Montana, now in Ontario, any time floods, carp are like, when it floods, it's like opening the pasture gates for, for cattle. Like the carp, when it floods, they push up into these newly submerged areas because it's just a feeding frenzy all the insects and the tender roots of plants that they can get at like this last year in lake ontario it was 118 year water high which is crazy there was water coming up over the roads and like carp pushed into these public parks and golf courses so we're like walking around basically in a fort like a submerged forest and cast like making these little bow and arrow casts at carp and then when you actually hook them you have to like zigzag through the trees so they don't wrap you around a tree and break you off it's it's pretty awesome <laughs> like i've seen carp with their bellies in like one inch of water and they like they like once they get done feeding they like flop back to the water it's crazy but yeah high water i think flooding is the absolute best time to fish for carp anywhere i've lived really across the country so if you could if you could plug my website or something that would be cool <laughs> yeah for sure uh, for anyone that's interested uh, my writing and photography uh, is all on uh, flywatermedley.com
Alrighty, not sure what's happening next week, but we have a few ideas in the works that are more comedic than serious. So make sure to come back for more. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. She comes on like a whisper smoke channel pushing out the summer's I'll never know all of her for she's ever changing as the moments pass. And their kisses were the fast little tunes may she grow strong till the end of days. The twists and bends of the way she moves falls off against my open palms. What I love most is the touch of her washing o'er my body on a restless day. And their kisses were the fast little tunes may she roll strong till the end of days. Till the end